Listeners, start your engines. Detours episode 24. Rob here. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. Give us a listen, rating, review, etc. on your podcatcher of choice. We're also on Good Pods. I should probably throw that out there. Having a lot of fun connecting with people there. On this episode, we're going to be talking about 2017's Happy Death Day and 2019's Happy Death Day to You. Uh, fans of that franchise will know there's been long talk of a third movie, which my guest Robert Stewart of Stew World Order podcast and I will get into. Lots of fun stuff to jump into here with Jessica Roth's performance, all the genre bending, uh, comedy, horror, sci-fi. It's a real mishmash of uh, genre conventions, these films. So let's jump right into our conversation about the Happy Death Day films. Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're actually doing a standalone discussion on Happy Death Day from 2017 and Happy Death Day to You from 2019. And I'm honored to welcome to the show Robert Stewart of the Stew World Order. Welcome. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So tell people who aren't familiar, didn't hear us talk about Kingsman of the Secret Service <laughs> on your show. So check that out. If you, if you like the show and you don't, you're not tired of my voice, go, go check out that episode of, of Stu's show. Tell people what the Stu World Order is all about. Yeah, so at the Stu World Order, we review random comic book movies, as you know. And anybody who wants to listen to the episode you're on will find out. I have a list of comic book movies, movies based on comic books, so not necessarily all superhero stuff. I think right now it's from like 1 to 115. I have people come on and pick three numbers. I tell them what three movies they drew, and then they choose the one that they want to watch. So yes, you've been on previously, and we did discuss Kingsman, The Secret Service, which is good. And then I still have not seen the second one, which you've told me is much less good. But I did yeah. see The Kingsman, the new one that came out, and that was not nearly as as, as entertaining as the first one. I, I haven't seen it either. To, as a follow-up to people who heard, our, who heard our episode of your show, I know I haven't seen The Kingsman either. It's on Hulu or HBO Max or somewhere streaming. And I, it's one of those movies that I've, I've been meaning to. Like, I should probably watch that because I, I, I like the first one a lot, as we said. And the second one is, I, I like elements of it. So just for, co- for completionist's sake, I, I felt like I should check it out and I still have not done it. So that says a lot about the, and I think we talked about this on your episode, on, on your show about this. I think that says a lot about the excitement over the franchise. <laughs> Even the people like me who are like, oh, man, the first Kingsman movie rocks. What is up with the second now? We're just like, eh, let's see it when I see it eventually. Where's that? Yeah, it's one, just, I guess. Yeah, it's just going now. The the Kingsman movie, the newest one that came out, it you can tell that it looks at some of the stuff that was in Secret Service and says like, oh, there was some goofy stuff that people hear. We're going to really lean into the goofy side of things. And it's the worst parts of the movie. <laughs> oh, no, boy. All right. So. There, that's out there. If people want to check out the Kingsman. It sounds like mild. Would you recommend that to people? Kind of. It, Not, yeah, I I think on Letterboxd, if I recall correctly, I gave it a two and a half out of five. It's not bad. It's when it leans into the goofy elements, it really doesn't work. 
And then it's it's far too long for what it's supposed to be. Like, I think the movie's like two hours and 20 minutes and it does not need to be. Oh boy. Yeah, that's it sounds like it seems to me like if it's a rainy day and you have nothing going on or you have a giant pile of laundry in your living room, as I do right <laughs> now, actually. And you're like, uh, let's put that on in the background. Look up when something cool is happening. Otherwise, you're just like, eh, I'm not missing that much. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> nice. It, so it ironically, the King's Man, extraordinarily long. Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you. Very tightly, tightly paced and edited movies. Like, I, I think that's one thing we could probably agree just before we even get going on those films. Both of them are, I think, maybe 95 minutes-ish, like, with credits. Yeah, if I recall correctly, I think my my server told me that Happy Death Day to You was, I want to say, an hour and 39 minutes, and the first one right, was a okay. few minutes shorter than that. But I mean, yeah. yeah, what you're talking about with the length of these movies, it they both pack a lot of stuff into each movie. So Absolutely. I think these movies are great. Like, these movies almost should be taught for pacing, because... They don't go too long. They don't stretch everything out. But as I was watching the first one, which I've seen a couple times now, I'm really far into the movie and I'm just thinking like, wow, I know there's all this stuff that's still to come. So those movies are just paced so well because they're brief, but they pack so much stuff into the time that they have. Nothing really feels wasted. Yeah, absolutely. So happy death day. Obviously, this the first one is only a few years old. What was your introduction to this franchise? Did you see the first one in theaters? I did. I believe, if I recall correctly, my wife and I had taken like a long weekend trip somewhere. Like maybe we went up to Lake Erie or something. And I think there was just a day where we didn't have anything else to do. So we went to the movie theater and we saw it there because that's we're hip happening people that even whenever we take long weekends away, we're like, let's go to the movies. Right. But I did end up seeing it in theaters and I was really impressed with it. I mean, we'll obviously get into all the meat and bones oh, of the discussion. 100%. Yeah, I, I was obviously really impressed with the first time I've seen it. So when they said this, they were doing a sequel, which obviously horror movies, if you're a horror movie that moderately is a success, you get a sequel or seven. <laughs> were you excited for a sequel or were you like, oh, no, they're going to ruin it? It seemed like a movie that didn't need a sequel. And mm -hmm. if I recall correctly, I did not see the sequel in theaters. I just waited until it was on some other service and watched it. But yeah, it was a movie where it was very much one of those things where I thought like that was an entertaining romp. It had a good ending. I don't know what you do with a sequel for this movie. No, I mean, that's that's totally fair. I mean, it is. Let's just get this out of the way. It is the Groundhog Day premise applied to a slasher film. And I don't, I don't think the movie hides that. Like, in fact, it, it deliberately calls it out in the very last scene of the movie. Or, or yeah, like it's, the, yeah, like very towards the end. I think there's a, I forget if that's before or after the like last minute gag. Yeah. It's weird to me that like Groundhog Day movie is almost its own little sub genre nowadays <laughs> because there was the edge of tomorrow. There's been Palm Springs. There was an episode of Supernatural where they did the gimmick where one of the characters kept dying and waking up. And it's just, I, I think that I really like this sub genre. I feel like such a schmuck because it's, you can only do so much with it. Or I guess actually you could do a ton of things with it, but it feels like every one of these movies has the same storyline going on of we have this shitty character right. and we're going to watch the shitty character slowly learn to become better. Like they all tell that story, but they all tell it in a different way. And I think every one of them has worked for me. Every one of the movies I've named, I've been a really big fan of. And that's just, that's just a satisfying arc 
in general. Like shitty character becomes, you know, improved, somewhat nice, sees the light, etc. It's the it's the Ebenezer Scrooge of it all. That's why it's why they're able to make that story a bazillion times in a million <laughs> different ways. And we're all like, yeah, the three ghosts, I get it. He's going to be nice at the end. Maybe sing a song, depending which version I'm watching. Maybe hang out with the Muppets if you, if you're, you know, if you have really good say, taste and you're watching. Maybe it'll be version. Michael Caine. <laughs> yeah. So there's something just satisfying as an audience member seeing that journey kind of play out. And I think that's that's why weirdly over the last few years, these two movies have kind of become sort of comfort movies for me in a way. And I didn't even see the first one in theater. So the, I, my experience was complete opposite. I, I the first one was coming out. I'd heard, of, you know, I'd heard about it. I was like, I heard the premise, and I. You know, it was coming out around the time where there were a million Blumhouse movies and some were good and some were whatever. And I was just getting burnt out on on all those films. And so I was like, I don't know if I'm going to see that. That sounds like it could be hokey. I think I even listened to a couple podcast reviews that spoiled it, which I completely forgot until I watched it. And then I and then I unlocked the memories of, oh, yeah, that's what I heard on that podcast. They talked about that that reference or that twist or whatever. So when the second one was coming out, my my wife and I were like, you know what? We should probably go like watch the first one. And then we watched it, fell in love with it, saw the second one like uh, that same week and then fell in love with that one too, which we'll, we'll talk about how different mm-hmm. those are. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's strange how, uh, how, how different our, our approaches to this, to this franchise are. And speaking to the, the genre mashup of it all, that, that seems like basically Christopher Landon, who uh, I think has co-writing credit on the first one and full writing credit on the second one, directed both. That's kind of his thing, because Freaky, his most recent film, is what if Friday the what if Freaky Friday meets a slasher film? So you know, and and I think that's very much kind of his his approach to what if I mash up this concept time loop movie or you know whatever with with the horror genre that you know that I that I know and love, and I think that's it's both approach that's novel and familiar at the, at the same point. One thing, and I want to just throw this out there, my big thing for this film and why I think this, this first one works so well is for me, it's not only that premise, it's how that premise is elevated by Jessica Roth. Because oh, yeah. Yeah, she is 100%. outstanding in these movies. And I would say one of the most underrated, like Scream Queens, Final Girls, whatever you want to call them, Certainly of the last decade or decade plus. What are what are your thoughts on Jessica Roth as a tree and what she brings to this material? Because you have a, a less capable or less compelling or an actress with less less lesser ability to handle both the horror elements and the comedy elements. This thing falls apart. Yeah, she is absolutely glorious in this movie. And ever since I've seen the first Happy Death Day, I've just been on this quest where I want to see her in everything now. Just like, how is she not in every movie I watch? I don't understand and it's not fair. Like, I have my short list of, you know, the, what, 20 actors in the world who haven't made their way into the MCU yet. And, like, my top ones are essentially, like, her and Daniel Levy. It's like, come on, get these two people in the MCU and I will be so happy. But she just... She she carries this movie, and so many horror movies do rely on the final girl, whether it's Nancy from Friday the 13th or, obviously, Laurie Strode in Halloween. And I think she's just fantastic in this. She's wildly charismatic. She's incredibly funny. And you really take this character, and we talked about the journey of the Groundhog Day subgenre, and she really slowly goes from just being this terrible character 
to being a much better person at the end. And it's in this believable way. It's not like the movie has a moment where a switch just flips and all of a sudden we're supposed to like her. Like she starts off terrible. The first day she's reliving the life, she's not a good person, but you're starting to see like you're sympathizing with her. The third, you know, life, I guess, if we're comparing it to a video game, she's getting a little bit better. She's starting to to empathize with other people in her world. And then it just gets better from there. And I mean, her performance just giving you this slow turn really makes the movie. Like you said, with with almost anybody else in that role, I don't know that this movie would be as good. No, 100%. Yeah, she is. She's the the secret ingredient that that makes this thing sing. And to your point about the the progression of Tree's character arc, you get that really encapsulated in that that, I guess, walk of shame through the campus, even though, you know, we don't learn the full circumstances of what happened with Carter until later on in the film. But you, you know, you get the the lady with the petition and then the 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 frat guys passing out from like the hazing and and all of that, which is, again, we even get the we even get the whole Groundhog Day element of her being like, this is going to happen. And they're like predict, predicting it all <laughs> happens, which I love. And so you, you get her you get the full experience of her going through that abject terror. And then what I love so much about about her character and these kinds of stories is that it's 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 when that she when she starts to kind of take turn that focus outward because her whole thing is, oh, you know, she's very selfish. She's very inconsiderate and and callous with everyone from from Tim to, you know, she's she doesn't really stand up for Becky at the at the at the meeting, the house meeting or any of that stuff. And then when she starts to show compassion to other people, that's when, you know, she starts to kind of find herself and find a way out. And I love that 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 those two goals sort of coincide. Yeah, I, I like I said, I, I really just like this movie. And yeah, all of that stuff involved in all of this, her performance. Yeah, I mean, you you really see it and you see it in different moments for different characters because she comes around on Tim first and then she comes around on, you know, Carter and everybody else as the movie goes on. And then obviously in the sequel, there's a little bit more development. But I like that her development in this, because she even has a moment where the movie does spell it out, but it works for her character where she talks like, my mom would not be happy with the person that I've become because so much of this movie is the dynamic of, you know, a daughter with a missing mother and how much that has, you know, impacted her because it's probably the death of her mother that made her cold and callous. Mm -hmm. But as she's going through all this and it's happening on her and her mother's birthday and she's thinking more about her mother, she realizes like, what have I let this turn me into? Right. Yeah, she has a line that is something along the line. I thought I wrote it, wrote it down, but I guess not. She says something like, when you have to live the same day over and over, you start to see who you really are, kind of. Yeah, that's a, yeah. this one. Because, because I watched them pretty close to, together and they, oh yeah, when you live the same day, you start to see who you really are. Yeah, I thought that was, that was obviously the movie's kind of shooting it shot, but I think it, it's, she sells that scene and it doesn't feel solely expositional. It feels like that character coming to some sort of an epiphany. And so I love that that's, it laid, not only does the sequel, which we'll get to in a little here, not only does it build on the the trauma that she underwent with her mom and how her, and this all happening on her birthday is has so much meaning for her, but it subverts that meaning. And is what if what if that wasn't the what if it wasn't some cosmic reason, which I think I think is an interesting take on it. And we'll get to we'll get to why whether that works for you when we get to get happy death day to you. But you have. 
the Groundhog Day element, and then you have the slasher element. What do you, what are your, what do you think about the, the baby, the Bayside baby <laughs> mask is, first of all, what kind of school has a baby as a, ma- as a mascot? Yeah. I think they call out in the second one. Yeah. They're like, what is up with that? This is like something, the, the movie, the second one's much more self-aware and the first one's already pretty self-aware. So the second one is just straight up like, okay, what's up with the baby mask? That's creepy as hell. What are, you, what are your thoughts on how the baby mask is both ridiculous and also kind of creepy at the same time? Yeah, I almost want to say the baby mask is supposed to be disarming. Like, it's supposed to remind you, like, hey, we're just here to have fun. Right. Because if you're ranking, like, the top 500 horror movie masks of all time, I don't know if this one even breaks the top 500 or anything. It's not a good mask, but it's it's just so silly that it lets you into this atmosphere. But it also creates kind of a thing where, like, you don't think the killer is dangerous because it's a guy wearing a baby mask. Like that just seems silly. And then you have this killer who really is proficient because he just kills her over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Like he has a really good success record that, you know, guys like Michael Myers and Jason can't really say. (laughs) Michael Myers is definitely, yeah. Michael Myers has definitely not killed Laurie Strode like 16 times. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I think it's, there's a movie called The Final Girls that if people haven't seen, I would definitely recommend checking that out. Where it also leads an on movie. It is, right? No, yes. people need to watch that. And that sets up a sequel too that we still haven't gotten. It's it, it it's sort of leaning on your familiarity with the genre and it's like it's sort of archetypal in a way. And I think it that's like we were saying, that would that makes it have that ubiquity of of a killer's mask, but also in this particular case. It's also the mascot of the school. So there's just, you know, when there's a, a big game, everybody's wearing the baby mask. So the movie, these movies lean on that a lot as well. In the same way that like Scream 2 does at the beginning. Yes. Uh, the stab, you know, screening. Yeah, that, I was just going to say that whenever you brought that up in the subsequent Scream movies, like you said, the masks are ubiquitous. Like everyone has them all over the place. And that's what this movie creates. It's like, you know, the very literal, like, oh, anybody could be the killer because they're at a school where there are thousands of these masks. So everybody on campus has a reason to have one. So just because she finds a mask somewhere, that doesn't mean she has solved her problem. And you get that great, that great moment where she's telling, I think telling Carter about her situation for the first time. And she's, he's like, well, who has a motive <laughs> to, to want to kill you? <laughs> and she's like, eh, everyone. But it's like, he's like, you know, oh, this person that I spit on last week and, and, you know, Danielle, I made out with this guy, Nick, at the party the night before and like all these different things. And and she's like, hey, she gets sort of defensive. She's like, hey, nobody's perfect. Nobody's uh, perfect. Which which she again, Jessica Roth sells all those all those moments so perfectly. Yeah. And then the, you have a murder mystery element to this, too. So it's it's a slasher film, plus a murder mystery, plus a time loop comedy, you know, and plus this sort of a coming-of-age story in a way for Tree, too. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think of the supporting cast? Because that's the other thing I think that really really makes these movies so much fun is that you have not only Jessica Roth as Tree, but then you have the character of Carter, you have Danielle, you have, you know, Laurie and, and Ryan, who we get a lot more of in the second one. What do you, what do you think of this supporting cast of characters? Because I really, I really love some of the supporting performances as well. 
I think the supporting cast goes from, you know, perfectly adequate to good. I think the problem that this movie is going to have is that everybody, with the exception of, oh, I'm going to look up on my phone because I'm real bad at research in advance here. But uh, everybody, with the exception of Israel Broussard, who plays Carter, is really overshadowed by Jessica Roth in this. Right. Like, he pulls his weight. He definitely is right there with her, giving a great performance as, I guess, the love interest, the comedic foil of this movie. Everyone else is fine. Like, I don't think there's anybody in this movie who doesn't work. But, yeah, I mean, it, it all really hinges on Jessica Roth, and everyone is there just to support her. I do like, in the sequel, Danielle gets a little bit more to do, other than yeah. be, like, the bitchy sorority girl. She gets the scene where she has to pretend to be a French blind person, oh my and God. that's just... Yeah, I mean, it's all <laughs> pratfalls and stuff, but it really works in the context of the movie and giving her character some comedic bones besides just being bitchy. Yeah, I had that. Uh, we're getting a little ahead now, but I had that note as well, too. It starts off. It, you could argue that this first one is probably still more comedy than horror, but it's like it has a legit focus on being a horror movie, being a slasher in a way like it fits that genre, even if it's lighter in tone, lighter in violence, PG-13. And I would say it's 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 a horror. It's like a, it's a horror slasher film that I would say is accessible to people who, are, who don't normally watch horror films because it is so tame on the violent side of things. But that we go from something that is legitimately kind of a horror movie to that sequence in the second one, that like over-the-top broad comedy, it's just, it just goes to show you what a range of tones these movies cover. Oh, yeah. It's very much like you just did the Evil Dead movies. And to a degree, you could say... Happy Death Day is Evil Dead 2, where it's a horror movie that is going to make you laugh because there are comedic elements. And then Happy Death Day to you is Army of Darkness, where it's a comedy that just has its feet grounded in a, a horror setting. Right. It's yeah, exactly. It starts there. It starts in a very similar place to the first one and then ends up somewhere completely different, which I think is what makes that that one sort of fun and surprising. We'll get we'll get to that in a bit. Let's see. I like in the first one. So we mentioned about tree and one thing i love about her character is that she's very she's very determined she's very once she figures out what's going on and she gets some direction from carter she's got this sense of agency throughout that i think is really is really cool to see in a character like that to root for she's i think i think the this one has the montage where she's working through the suspects list and so yeah. she's she's you know got camo on her at one point like like fucking on man I forget who it is at that point Danielle maybe I, 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 so much fun so much fun seeing Jessica Roth do all that stuff it's one of those funny things and like there for me because I really do enjoy this movie there's definitely stuff to pick on in these movies I don't like picking on these movies but I like the idea that. She has the suspect list, and every time she dies and finds out somebody wasn't the actual killer, she crosses the name off. But the list isn't coming with her, so literally that means every time she dies, she's making up the same checklist and then just crossing, crossing off names that she already knows aren't the killer. Right. That's true. That's true. In fact, that's kind of the, the linchpin for the second one, is that she has to constantly yes. recite everything from memory. She uh, very much needed a notebook to carry around in that one. Oh my God. But it yeah, reminds me of in the, in the whole genre of this, I just recently rewatched Edge of Tomorrow, and there's so many scenes where Tom Cruise is walking around, and he's like, look, I can prove it. Your second grade teacher was Mrs. Whatever, and she made fun of you in class one day. And it's funny because you think about the context of these movies, and you're just like, that means there was literally one of Tom Cruise's lives in that movie where he just walked around asking people about their second grade <laughs> teachers just so he could prove them wrong later on. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's it's true. And, and to Cherie's credit, she's able to get out of there, out of the time loop before she has to dig down to that kind of level of minutia. Like, oh, you yeah, know, she, she uses that that walk through campus as to, to prove that, hey, this is what's happening. But yeah, if you compare this to if I was yeah. going to say, if you compare this to Groundhog Day or Edge of Tomorrow or Palm Springs, for instance, in those movies, we're meant to imply that the character has lived this life thousands of times. Yes. Just over yeah. and over. In this movie, it's less than 20. Like, you pretty much yeah. see every life the tree has. Right. And I, I think that's, you need that in a, in a film where there's supposed to be a threat to the main character. That she, the, the big the reason that these movies work is that they have the addition of every time she gets killed, it takes a physical toll on her. Because without that, you have no stakes. And she's just going to be like a four-hour movie of her just, you know, <laughs> getting frustrated and wanting out. But that loses the horror element. You want to have the horror and the comedy element of it. I mean, and to your, to your you know, your reference there with, with Palm Springs and such. And, and in Groundhog Day, there's a scene where he, he's like, you know, oh, yes, you like, well, you don't like white chocolate and this thing you like. Like, you know, she's, he's like figuring out her drink order and everything like to a r- ridiculous degree. So I like that that this movie sort of starts out on that path of, oh, she's just in this endless loop. And then, you know, there's a turn like halfway through where she comes back and she has like stomach pains and passes out. And we get a, a very similar scene in the second one. With the second one, if there's one thing I would, one big thing I would criticize it for, it said it does mirror the pacing and the setup of this one pretty closely. I mean, the premise is very... It's, it's tweaked, but you still have the scene where she passes out halfway through and wakes up in the hospital and it's framed the same way. So have a montage of her dying in different circumstances and more, much more comedically in the second one. But you still have that last minute twist where it's not who you thought it would be. And I think that they, the fact that they introduced that makes, makes the story actual work and gives it, gives it a lot more agent urgency at that point where where a tree doesn't have that many chances left that she has to sort of figure her way out before she, she literally dies for good. And, and in that montage, we get that, that super fun transition with the, the bat where she gets hit across the head with the bat and it yes. knocks yeah. her into the bed. It's like, the, it's just Christopher Landon showing off basically at that point. <laughs> I would say that was one of the things that kind of bothered me about this movie where it creates the stakes. Yeah, it gives the whole thing where like she's getting weaker her her internal injuries are still there somehow. Like she has all the internal scarring from her injuries. And there's this whole like omnipresent, omnipresent thing of like, she can't do this forever, but the movie never really does anything with it. Like it tells us like she's getting weaker, but we never really see it aside from the one scene in each movie where upon waking up, she just passes back out and ends up in the hospital. But then those days end with her dying and she just wakes up the next day and goes about her life. So it it's kind of like a tell but not show thing. It's telling us like, oh, she's getting weaker, but we don't really see the ramifications to it. We don't really see like what the end is. It's just her speculating that she only has so much time left. And I mean, I guess the only alternative is you have a cut of this movie where she dies and that's it and she doesn't save the day. And nobody wants that either. But yeah, it does feel like there are these stakes that we're just supposed to accept, but we don't really have any proof of them. That yeah, that's true. It's I, I I I I know I could see what you're saying. Like it does feel sort of manufactured. Like she's fine, she's fine, she's fine. Oh, she's not fine. And then she's oh, she kind of powers through the rest of the movie. And then 
I, I guess once she's in the day where it stays, like those wounds go away. Like, do they still linger? What is? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when she's when she's spoilers for the second one. When she's stuck <laughs> back in the time loop, is that you know is that also going to be is that going to be something that she continues from the the injuries from the previous movie or is she starting fresh? Like, it, but that's the thing. These movies are so sort of not frivolous with the rules, but kind of. Where it's like you you kind of kind of cut it some leeway at a certain point. Like, oh like, yeah, yeah. We we talked about the child's play movies, like I said on the show, and and those movies just every movie it's a different setup for how he gets into a soul of a uh, into a different body or when he needs to do so when he becomes human how he does it is it the does he need an amulet is it a a voodoo <laughs> chant how long is the voodoo chant because it started really long in the first couple movies and then it's just like give me the power I beg of you and that's it. Yeah. Um, Pretty yeah, it much. took him forever whenever he whenever they needed the hero to be able to <laughs> yeah, get away. It yeah. took him forever. Exactly. Exactly. And it's this movie is it's anchored by Jessica Roth's performance. It's anchored by Tree's emotional journey. It's anchored by you know, obviously the, the the trauma from her mom, which which plays into in the second one a lot more, as we said. And it's and it's kind of fueled by the relationship or their or or you know, I guess the beginnings of the relationship with her and Carter. Now, what are your thoughts on this movie and especially the second one really leans into the love story element. Do you buy that, that, that relationship or that connection between the two of them in this one? I, I do. I think Broussard and Roth have just great chemistry across these two movies because in the first one, much like with her character development, when you first see them together, just visually for some reason, she seems like she should not be in the scenario. He seems like way beneath her pay grade. Like, why is this happening? And then just visually, the way it's shot, the way she looks, the way he's presented as he starts to become a little bit more heroic as the movie goes on. By the end of the movie, they do seem on equal footing. And with everything they've gone through, you buy their relationship. And even to a degree where everything she's gone through, he has not. Mm. But he just seems like the character who would accept what she's telling. He seems like a nice guy because of what you find out he's done for her. Because, yeah, when you first see the movie, you think like, oh, he took this drunk sorority girl home and, and you know, did something untoward with her. And you end up finding out that's not the case. He was just making sure she was safe and protected. So you end up buying, as you find that out about his character, that he's somebody who the next day when this crazy girl wakes up and is like, I'm living the same day over and over again, that he's like, all right, well, let's figure this out for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And I, I like that when she realizes that, that he wasn't, he didn't take advantage of her or anything. Like, it's not, obviously, the normal thing to do would not to be to take advantage of her. So that's good. Uh, but it's not, it's not, the movie doesn't do this leap where she's like, he didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't take advantage of me when I was passed out. What a hero. I'm in love with him immediately. <laughs> you know, that, that just, that just kind of takes her back where she's like, oh, because that's probably the kind of guy she's used to dating. I mean, look, she's, she's involved with a married man. Nick is clearly an idiot. And so it's, <laughs> it, it just gives her double take that maybe because there's more to Carter than I realized. And then she starts to kind of open her eyes and see that, oh, he's actually a decent person. And, you know, he's got all these good qualities. And then she started bonds to him. But like she says in the second one, like I died over and over and over again until I, I fell in love with you. Which, and I agree with you. I think that works. I, I, I'm, sap, I'm a sap when it comes to these kinds of things generally. I also just did finish doing the Spider-Man 
trilogy and Sam Raimi. And I'm like, oh, these two and the chemistry. And a lot of people watch those and roll their eyes. They're like, yeah, yeah, Kirsten Dunst, Tobey Maguire, whatever. But I, I agree with you. Like, I totally buy into their connection here. I think they have the chemistry and the the arc that the two of them go on together by the end, it is, it's believable, not only that, that he would, would care about her and she would care about him back, but it's also, it also in a way throws the power dynamic off balance. She wakes up in his bed, so immediately on his turf. Then by the end, she knows a lot more about him than he knows about her. To the point that in the second one, he tells Ryan, he's like, oh, you know, oh, she's not my girlfriend. And she he kind of, she kind of glares at him and he's like, yeah. She's like, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, because to <laughs> him, it's like, literally been a, to him, it's been a day and a half. And he's like, he's yeah. with this girl and he's happy, but he doesn't think anything of it. But yeah, to her, it's been three weeks or so at this point. Right. She's like, yeah, we're. I've saved your life. You've saved my life. Yeah, like we're we're definitely together at this point. Yeah, and so she she starts to she starts to kind of already have those feelings. I think in this first one, when Tombs, which we didn't even mention him yet, he's sort of the red herring of this movie, and and the second one, I guess, to a degree, when he kills Carter, and then he shows she realizes that she has to sort of die again to come back and save him. So, which I think is, you know, is the way that the 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 stakes of her having a presumably limited number of lives and, you know, her, her emotional connection to Carter sort of dovetail together into that, that final act. Yeah, you knew that scene was coming the entire movie. I yeah. think they do the same thing in Edge of Tomorrow and you know it's coming. Like, there's going to be a part where the character is going to be able to get out of the loop, but the, the person they're with dies, so they're going to have to throw themselves back into it. And I think it really works in this movie because, like I said, their chemistry is really good and her character development really leads you to a point where when it happens in the movie and she finally has, quote unquote, you know, won. She's put herself in a situation where she's mm -hmm. not going to die, but she realizes like, oh, well, crap, <laughs> I can't do it. And it really works. Even though you know it's coming, you still get invested enough in that scene and believe that that's what she would do. And then when she comes back and saves him, you get the little 16 candles homage of the two of them with the cupcake. And then, yeah. and then she dies and wakes up again. And then you get the Lori twist. What were your initial, you know, did you see that coming when you saw this movie the first time? I didn't. I'm historically terrible at predicting anything <laughs> in like in whodunits or anything like that. It's it's one of those things. And again, like I'm I'm just good at nitpicking movies, even whenever I like them, like she spends all these lives focused and taking her time and trying to figure everything out. And then after that last death, like she just becomes Batman all of a sudden. And she's like, it was the cupcake all along. <laughs> and it's like, you have no evidence to go on with that. You're just you just look at a cupcake and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that did it. And it's like, all right. I mean, I'll buy it because once again, this movie is a really tight like hour and a half and it didn't need right. to be any longer than that. So you need to get to a point where the character goes like, oh, okay, and makes the leap in understanding. So I'll buy it. It's fine. No, I didn't see it coming that it was going to be Laurie. But then when you rewatch the movie, you know, all the clues are there. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah, absolutely. The cupcake. She never she never eats the cupcake until that one, yeah. that one day. So, yeah, I, it's the one character that that the movie doesn't draw any attention to. And I think. For Tree, it's the one person she probably wouldn't even think of because she doesn't know how much Lori hates her because Lori's pretending to be nice every single day coming. She finally rolls in and 
presents her with the cupcake, the only person that seems to care, even though Tree is kind of a shit as a roommate. It's, you know, she, she, she's coasts by on a technicality and like, well, I guess Nori doesn't never, obviously, outwardly seems to hate me. So it's, yeah, I, I think it works. I think it works because of what you said, because it plays on replay. It, it, when you go back and watch it, it's like the sixth sense thing where you're like, oh, she didn't ever eat the yeah. Like, look, they didn't even, <laughs> she didn't respond. He was dead the whole time. Spoilers for that movie. But yeah, no, I, I, I love it. And I love what they do in the second one with Lori is that they twist everything on its head. And going, in, going into the second one, this is my, my favorite kind of sequel in that it picks up literally exactly where the first one ended. Which, yes, if the first one is Groundhog Day, this is Back to the Future Part 2, which, again, the movie calls out. You know what this reminds me of? Back to the Future Part 2. You know, uh, like, they do, they do say that, and I didn't even pick up on the fact that, like, yeah, because Back to the Future picks up immediately where the, the yeah. first one ended. So that's what that reference is. I didn't ever even pick up on that. That's a good catch. And in there, they have the, uh, what, alternate Hill Valley, the, 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 Kind of like the tangent in the time stream, yeah. That that Doc and Marty create in that movie, and here you have the alternate, you know, the alternate universe version of Tree's life. And I, I after watching, I watched this. I watched Spider Man, and I was like realizing I've seen all these multiverse movies this week, <laughs> uh, and how this film weirdly Happy Death Day beat both Marvel and DC to the multiverse at, on the big screen, which is kind of interesting. What are your thoughts on the second one? I know on Letterboxd, I think you gave the first one like five stars and the second one like, what, three, three and a half, I think? Something like I that. What are your was, thoughts, General? I think it was three and a half. I think it falls into a bit of sequelitis. And my thing I do with sequels in my head is when a sequel comes out, I grade all sequels against Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Not because it's the best sequel or the best movie ever made, but because how easy would it have been when they decided to make a Bill and Ted sequel to just stick them back in a phone booth and have them go back through time again? Like it would have been the easiest thing in the world to do. You already knew that concept made money. But what they did instead was they just took the characters and put them in an entirely different situation. Like all of a sudden they're dead and they're robots and it's not about traveling through time and meeting famous people from the past. It's they really took a risk and just swung for the fences on this brand new concept with these characters you've established. So when I see sequels or even in remakes, in some cases, what I want is for them to just really take a huge chance. Just give me something that I haven't seen before. And this movie seems like it might do that for a while. And then you hit the point in the movie where it is just tree dying and waking up over and over again. And so I think like, all right, this is kind of the film's safety blanket. It didn't want to get away from what the first movie established, what it already knows people liked. So that's a little bit disappointing. The way the movie was set up, what I would like to have seen is one where she wakes up in a different reality every time. Because she kind of shifts and goes into this alternate reality, and then it just becomes the first movie, but in that reality. I would like to have seen one where that... that the sissy thing that Ryan built every time she dies, she wakes up in a new reality and let the filmmakers play around with everything different that you could have done. And I don't know if I'm thinking that because I just watched everything everywhere all at once and really like that. But I yeah. just had that idea in my head where it's like, Oh, that would have been a really neat direction to take this movie other than it just feels kind of safe the way they went. And it's still enjoyable. The formula is still fun. Jessica Roth is still tremendous in the role. And, I'll be completely honest, 
the second movie really turns for me the moment where she goes to meet her dad mm-hmm. and then her mom comes in because I didn't see that coming. And that really is a huge emotional moment in the series for her. And suddenly I talked earlier about the kind of fake stakes that are set up by her gathering her internal injuries. All of a sudden, the second movie gives her real stakes. Like she's in this universe where she has her mother and we know how much her mother drove her entire life in the first movie. So you legitimately have this reason where it's like, okay, she might actually stay in this reality. You really buy that that's where this could end up going. But, you know, aside from the introduction of the mother, everything else is, you know, what we've seen before. Yeah, that's fair. I, I it, it does... It does sort of do, to mention another Keanu Reeves franchise, it does sort of do like Matrix Resurrections where it's like, guess what? Everything you knew was a lie. And then halfway through, it's like, just kidding. Here we go back with, <laughs> where we were, you know, yeah. you were kind of thinking this, worried this might be. And that's a movie I even like, but it's very divisive for that reason. And I feel like Happy Death Day to You is probably less well regarded because of what you're saying, because it does sort of uh, twist things enough for people who wanted the same thing to be disappointed and then but then not change things enough for people who wanted something different it kind of tries yeah, to it, have its have its uh, have its birthday cupcake and eat it too and i, <laughs> yeah, I it plays it very safe and i mean i i can't really blame filmmakers for that but i'm always a little bit disappointed like i know kind of a controversial opinion i saw ghostbusters afterlife this past year and i hated it because it was just like I've already seen Ghostbusters 1 movie. You don't need to do Ghostbusters 1 yeah. again. If I want to watch Ghostbusters 1, except with an R rating or whatever, I'll just watch that. And I felt like Ghostbusters Afterlife, like I talked earlier how like I compare Bill and Ted's bogus journey to swinging for the fences because, man, they tried something different. I compare Ghostbusters Afterlife to just laying down a bunt like it did not want to take any risk at all. Well, it was the son of the guy who directed the original. His dad sitting <laughs> over his shoulder being like, what are you going to do? And he's like, oh, the, the, what, what did you do? Okay, cool. R.I.P. Yeah. Reitman, by the way. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I respect what they did. I just, it wasn't for me. I wanted something that came out a little bit brassier. And I feel like this movie is somewhere in between. Like, it starts off different. It introduces these sci-fi elements that we didn't have in the first one. It introduces all these new characters like the dean of the school and Ryan's friends. But a lot of the movie is just like, okay, well, here's the safety of Tree dies and wakes up. It also retroactively, and I, you know, I, I'm sure Christopher Landon has, well, you know, I, did he, did he plan it or not? I'm tend to lean towards not, but if he didn't plan it, it's a smart reverse engineering of the blackouts in the first moon movie, uh, tuition dollars, dollars at work as the, you know, this sort of symptom of the experiment that was happening across campus. It reminds me of like when the pirate sequels had the compass, it, what, it, what it did was whatever your heart desires. And technically the first one doesn't negate that, but it's sort of recontextualizing things. And I think that's that's a, a fun sort of element to play with. So do you think the fact that Sissy is the reason that the time loop happens, do you, do you agree with Carter that, well, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a rational reason behind it. Your, your emotional journey is your emotional journey. Or do you think that somehow undermines the fact that there's an explanation behind it undermines Tree's development. This is very much a your mileage may vary kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I could accept anybody giving any stance on this. I kind of like the whole Groundhog Day thing where it's like, why is it happening? Ah, who knows? It's just happening. Just accept it. And the, the sequel, yeah, it gives it an explanation and it's fine. But I do like the idea of 
this is just something that's happening. Just accept it. Like in the, the freaky movie, I can't remember. Is there a reason giving why they switch bodies? Like they do some weird, like there's some weird thing, but it's not like, why does that work? There's an artifact that's like, you know, cursed or magical or whatever. There's like a dagger, I think, or something that when they both touch it, their souls switch. If I recall correctly, I've only seen that That one time. If I recall correctly, the first movie was written by Scott Lobdell and the second one is not. Like he's just credited as based on characters created by Scott Lobdell. So I would imagine the whole idea of Sissy just came in later on whenever they mm-hmm. backed the money truck up and said, hey, this movie made money. Give us another one. <laughs> yeah. Figure yeah. it out. And and if, if that's the case, that's a, it's a pretty solid way of figuring it out. I mean, it was present throughout the first one. In the first one, it really just serves the purpose of timing-wise because she uses that to her advantage late yes. in the first movie. So it's, it's pretty much present just for that. But the fact that it plays a, more, a grander narrative role in the second one, I think, is a smart way of sort of fitting that in there. I also wanted to shout out that I, I like how the, the film opens with Ryan and then sort of overlaps. Like, I, when I saw the second one, I, as I said, I, I just had seen the first one for the first time, like, you know, the, earlier that week, and I didn't watch any of the trailers or anything, so I had no idea what the hell this was going to happen in this movie until I saw it happening. And so when it gets to that point, I think like 25 minutes in, basically the beginning of act two, where she's back in the same day and she's like, no fucking way. And then just walks through, does the same walk through campus. And I love that they, it seemingly brought all those actors back in to do those exact little bits. And the fact that she's just walking through there like same day, same day, freaking out. <laughs> it's hilarious. Do you, do, do you like the fact that this is less horror more sci-fi comedy or are you sort of missing the legitimate or I mean and I don't really think the first one's scary either but at least it it tries to have horror uh, setups and sequences do you miss that in this one or are you just like yeah whatever who cares I don't miss it yeah I think it's fine I think again that's what I'm talking about to a degree where I think this is kind of in between Ghostbusters Afterlife and Bill and Ted like it did go with pretty much a different genre. Instead of being a horror with some comedy, it became a comedy sci-fi with some horror. It really just said like, all right, well, we're going to at least toy around with the genre, and I appreciate that. I don't necessarily have a problem with it being less of a horror movie, because like you said, the first one's not like, the first one's not The Ring. You didn't go to bed at night watching Happy Dead Day and be scared. Right. But I, so I didn't really have a problem. I actually had a question for you, though, when you started talking about the second one. Do you think the second one would have been better or worse if instead of going entirely the direction that it went the second one ended up being ryan waking up every day on tuesday the 19th and having to go and you know convince a tree like hey this is the thing that happened to you yesterday now it's happening to me do you think that would have been a better movie or do you think you lose the the stuff that goes on with tree's mom and then it just loses its heart i think this movie is better than that would have been i like I yeah. like Ryan as a character. I think, you know, obviously he's very flat in the first one. He just has that one, that one line that he says, <laughs> when he emerges, yeah. which I will not repeat here. But, but yeah, I, I was, I think, sort of worried that that's what that was going to be for a while. Not because I, I'm not interested in that character, but because it would have felt, it would have felt samey in that, like, in that direct-to-video horror way, where it's just mm-hmm. uh, same premise, different character, side character. We couldn't get, you know, I, I've never even seen any of these movies, so I don't know why this is the one that popped into my head, but like, oh, Van Wilder, we couldn't get Ryan Reynolds, so now it's the rise <laughs> of Taj, or whatever, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think that would have just, 
it would have felt really copy and paste to me. And all the elements of the first one that we said worked were the love story with Carter, the emotional stakes with the mom, Jessica Ross' performance. So to have her be in sort of a supporting role, I, I think would have, it would have diluted what worked about the first one. Even though on, on the other hand, I'm like, well, that would have been unexpected. You know, that, that I think we, we, the movie, again, tries to do, does that a little here and then shifts back over to Tree, which ultimately I think is for the best because I, I love that character and, and I love seeing her becoming sort of an expert on, uh, on quantum mechanics <laughs> by yeah. the end of this, where, you know, jumping briefly at, at the end of the movie when the government is like, hey, we're going to need a, we went to experiment and, and figure out this machine. Tree's like, oh, I think I can help with the formulas and stuff. Just And they're like, really? She's like, I, I'm an expert in this now. I know more about this machine than you guys do. I think that's, that's really cool that in these two movies, it starts out with this, this sorority girl who's very selfish and very kind of like nonchalant, disinterested in everyone around her. And she, you know, she's involved with a married man. She's ignoring her father and all this. And then we get to the end and she's like, oh, I got a boyfriend. I got this crew now. I'm like tight with the nerds and Danielle. <laughs> And I'm an expert in quantum mechanics. And I, you know, I'm a science nerd now, basically. I think what a, what a uh -huh. journey that character goes on in those two movies. And it's all because of this time loop. And she's more at peace with herself. Her relationship with her dad is better. She's said goodbye to her mother. She has the chance to say goodbye, as Carter says in this film. So I, I yeah, I just, my whole thing is, I, I, you, need, you need to focus on Tree because she is the, the anchor on these, in these movies. Yeah, that makes sense. I agree with everything you said there. It would have been interesting to follow Ryan around, but I think with the sequel, as I kind of alluded to when I made the question, was if you take Tree's mother out of this sequel, you lose the best part of this movie. Yes. So I don't think just changing the focus would have improved on what this movie already did. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and there's there are elements in the comedy and of the com comedy in this that I think is a little too much. Like when the machine kind of explodes, or you get the slow motion sequence early on, and then again later on, and Samar is like holding them off with the fire hydrant, and Dre is like <laughs> holding onto the other ankles, and all the churro jokes. Like I could have done without some of that. Like I feel like it mm -hmm. goes a little too far in that. I I don't know. Maybe that part of that is because it's putting focus on characters that are not Tree or Danielle or Carter, like the ones that we saw from the first one. Maybe that's part of it. Because the other goofier elements in this is the death montage. Is just her committing suicide and increasingly outlandish. Yeah, ways. yeah. It's not the it's not the baby mask guy killing her. It's her just right. realizing like, all right, this didn't work. I got to start over. And you get this upbeat pop song, and yes, while she's <laughs> while she's doing it, you get by far the grisliest moment in these movies, which is her jumping into like the wood chipper. Oh, whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, God, like I, yeah. it was. It, it's sh the only shocking moment violence, you know, of violence in these films. I'd say. Yeah, grizzly wise, that's definitely probably the grizzliest yeah. death. I thought at first you were going to mention when she just goes to the store and downs the bleach because oh God. that's yeah. the one where when she wakes up the next day, she has the the visceral reaction to yeah. what she went through. Yeah, and I love all of that too. Like she electrocutes herself and she wakes up with her hair all all like, yes. uh, you know, standing on end. And and like, I, I loved her, the way that she, the way that the, the death kind of carries into her, her, you know, her waking up in the room the next day. Is there a, is there a favorite, it's a, it's a weird phrase, weird question. Is there a favorite <laughs> death in that sequence that, that you think is particularly funny or clever? I mean, obviously the most memorable one is probably the, the skydiving one yeah. where she goes <laughs> up and she just falls to her death right in front of Carter and Danielle, obviously, flipping them off for their little alternate reality relationship. <laughs> 
And yeah, I yeah. just you you brought it up. I really like the montages because what the the montage in the first movie is set to "Confident" by Demi Lovato. The second movie, the montage is set to "Hard Times" by Paramore. Really good songs that really work super well for those scenes, and they're really fun montages in both of them. Yeah, that's true. We didn't even mention her streaking her way through campus in the first film. Yeah. I just yeah. like, I don't care anymore. It's the, it's the <laughs> Bill Murray, like, you know, I'm not going to live by their rules anymore. It's uh, that moment. Yeah. Uh, it's funny just- to think about too. Cause yeah, there's, there's the reality where she just walks out naked across campus instead of putting her yeah. clothes on. And in your head, you always have the thought of like, what if this is the one where it stops? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. She's taking a gamble there, but she's, you know, she's embracing <laughs> She's embracing her, 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 her body. I don't, I don't know. She's confident. Yeah, no, I agree. It's the, it's the skydiving one for sure. It's the way, it's the wave she does when she, when she like jumps off. Yeah. When she's in the plane and she just waves at the guy. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, what the fuck? I love that. I love that. We mentioned obviously Danielle has a much bigger role here. I, I think knew this and then forgot it. And then realized again that Rachel Matthews who plays Danielle is actually the niece of Christopher Landon, who directed oh, these okay. films and wrote wrote this, the uh, co-wrote the first one, I think, wrote the second one. And I I just think she's she does so much more with that character in this film. Cause in the first one, she is basically, you know, the mean girl kind of stereotype. And that's kind of all she gets to play. There's a there's sort of a there's a mild triangle of sorts in the first one with Nick, which we get we forgot to mention that Nick's death in the like in that scene with the music, he's got a, like a mini rave going on in his in his bed yeah. or whatever, which is really fun. What do you think about Danielle, her growth here, and are, is this a character that we are supposed to care about? Like, what are your thoughts going into whatever? Because clearly, uh, the third one seems like it's going to be very Danielle focused, or at least continuing oh, okay. her role. That makes sense. Yeah, in the first movie, she's just an archetype. She's just there to be kind of an antagonist to tree and that's her entire role in the second one you get a lot of development from her and she does get to be a little nuanced although you do end up finding out in that reality she's also not a great person but she's at least trying a little bit more in that reality like she she has flaws she's cheating on carter but she does aside from that seem to be a better person i mean she cheating is obviously shitty but she's genuinely nice to tree completely unrelated to all the Carter stuff. She's like, oh, you don't have to come to the meeting. It's your birthday. And she seems much sweeter to everyone. She's willing to completely make a clown of herself to help them out. So there's a lot more new and she's a lot more of a developed character there. So it's kind of sad when you realize, well, we're just going to go back to the other reality now where she's just a mean person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We lose all that development. And I mean, like you said, the movie could do a bunch of stuff. We don't know anything about her backstory. Tree was essentially a bad person too. From, you know, the very beginning of that movie. And essentially, if that's all we'd seen of her, we would think the same thing. So you can do a lot with her, but it does feel like, oh, she had all that development. And then we just left that one behind. It makes me wonder the way that this ends with presumably Danielle being the test subject for Sissy. It makes me think that the third one will open with a Danielle heavy first act, kind of in the way that this is Ryan's first act. And then we'll we'll kind of continue her journey. But in this in this reality and then kind of you know, take it again, take it in a different direction, but we'll, you know, we'll get to that in a second. We, we talked about Missy Yeager's performance as Tree's mom and how, how great she is in this. I think she's, it's, it's weird that in a movie this goofy that it, it also has a scene that makes me like emotional. Like I legit get a, like a little misty eyed in the scene with the mom, especially the goodbye scene. And I love yeah. that. That's what I think is so fascinating about this, these movies and 
you know, the first one, it's it is sort of the self-discovery about reliving the same day and discovering who you are and the way the world sees you. And you start to be like, well, maybe I should not be a shitty person. Let me work on that. And then the second one is really more about sort of uh, about the, how that pain and, and the memories and the trauma that you've endured, how that shapes who you are. And it really is, it's be, it's becomes part of who Tree is and kind of shapes her worldview. And I think that's such a kind of profound statement in a movie that, that has the main character kill themselves by, <laughs> kill herself by drinking bleach and like doing all this, you know, in such a crazy, seemingly wacky movie. I love that they, they sneak sort of some profundity into that subplot with the mom. Yeah, it's interesting because you'll see movies where characters have this choice. And as you're watching it, you're thinking like, well, this isn't really a choice. Like, you know exactly what's going to happen. You know exactly what you would do in that situation. This presents something much more interesting where if you were in that character's position, you're literally forced to choose between this guy that you're developing a relationship with. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't know that it's going to have a happy ending. But what you do know is that this guy has saved your life. He has put his life on the line for you. You have put your life on the line for him. But opposing that, you have literally your mother, who mm -hmm. was this huge guiding force in your life. And I mean, it's a legitimately tough choice. It's something that you could sit around with people at the end and talk about, like, well, which would you choose in that situation? Because both choices are pretty difficult. So I can totally see it's a choice that actually matters in movies. It's not one that's just there to pad the movie, but you already know what's going to happen. And you were talking to throw back to something we had mentioned earlier. You're talking about these sentimental moments in what is essentially a horror comedy right. that you don't see coming. I really appreciate that too. You mentioned final girls. I never would have thought there would be a time in a movie where Malin Ackerman would do a strip tease to the song, Betty Davis eyes. And I would mm -hmm. almost cry over right. it, but, yeah. and that year that movie did that. And yeah, like you said, that movie does this where tree has to say goodbye to her mom. Yeah. It's it. And, it, and if it didn't have the foundation of the relationship with her and Carter that we already are bought into from the previous film, it would be a very pretty easy choice. If it was, if, yeah. if she was presented with that choice in the first movie, I think we'd be like, well, you don't even know this guy. Go go save your mom. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that he is not only the reason that she chooses to stay in that in this reality, but that he's also gives her the advice, like kind of frames the frames the choice through, you know, the fact that it's not her life, that she she sees yeah. the her mom is talking to her about, oh, you remember that place we went last year and we got those big cinnamon buns and, and she sees video and she's like, this wasn't me. Like it, it's, she doesn't belong there. And in a way, as nice it is, as it is to have her mom back, it's also, it's, it, you know, fate has, has, has kind of dealt her that hand and it's up to her to take that lesson and take that experience and be the best she, she can be from that. And I think maybe that's why these movies have sort of be like, sort of became comfort movies for me in the early part of the pandemic. And then, you know, I, just because they have that sort of optimism and, and they have like that such, such a humanistic quality to them. We're like, hey, you can be better. Every, every, day, every day is a chance to be someone better, I think, as they say at some point. In one of these movies, they, they're a blur at this point because they're because of the, the you know the watching them back to back yeah, yeah I did the same thing and it's yeah which, I don't remember what happens in which one to a certain degree yeah yeah so I, I do I love that that is the is the choice that she's that she's given to the point where you're so focused in the second one on which reality is she going to stay in is she going to stay where she or her mom's alive or is she going to stay go back to the other one 
where Carter is, where she's in a relationship with Carter, which technically you could also be like, or she stays in the one where her mom is, and then she tries to win Carter away from Danielle, which probably wouldn't be that hard. But I was actually just going to say that. I was like, clearly the way the second movie goes, she theoretically could have stayed in that reality and still had Carter because she knew Danielle was cheating on Carter. Carter clearly seemed to be invested in her, at least as a person by the end of the second movie. But yeah, you have that thing where it's, it's what he told her. Like, look, the the life experiences that have happened to the tree in this world aren't your life experiences. So what has shaped that person is not who you are. So yeah. you can't really be here. But it really does seem like it's a really tough choice because theoretically, it does seem like in that reality, she could have had it all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I so I, I like that that's, that is so strong. Her emotional kind of dilemma is so strong. That you forget, you forget at a certain point. Oh yeah, there's still a killer on the loose. That's right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That, that when you know when it's she goes after. She's like she realizes. Oh, Tombs is also here. That's right. Crap. And that's also a thing. And then you get a twist again, which is is that a satisfying twist at all? Do we care any there anymore at that point? I feel like I I feel like Christopher Landon might not even care as much because his chips are so far <laughs> on the other story that. I, if I'm not mistaken, the alternate ending for the first one is, I believe, Gregory being the killer. So it's like he just used oh, the alternate okay. ending from the first movie as the the twist here because it's it's so less integral to the story who the killer is in this one. Yeah, this one, the the baby face killer, whatever. It, I don't know if it has a name like ghost face or baby face. I don't know if it has a name, but the killer is much more of a background thought in this one because, heck, her montage death scene is her killing herself just so she can figure out the formula it's not the killer getting her over and over again so yeah you get to the end and you're like oh yeah but we already know Lori's a better person so we know it's not her so i do feel like that's another thing in the second movie where you know it's not Lori. you figure it's not danielle because she's a much better person you have really run out of suspects in the second movie to the point where when you start thinking about it it has to be gregory he's the only person left Like, Mm -hmm. unless this is a reality where we're just suddenly going to have Tim be a dick, it doesn't (laughs) seem likely. Yeah. No. And I, when I saw this the first time I was, I was completely, I, I was surprised only because I hadn't even thought about that, the baby face killer at that point. Like, and I, so I guess it's satisfying ish. She gets the, the, she gets a very like, you know, eighties action movie sort of one liner with your screwed. With the screwdriver, <laughs> which yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate that. So, so that that's kind of fun. But yeah, it's, it's ultimately that's not what this franchise seems like it's interested in anymore at that point. And is there is there anything about either of these first two movies you wanted to make sure we shout it out before? Because I wanted I want to do a, a a kind of wrap up, but also briefly talk about what do we even want from a third one? Any, no, any, I think we talked okay. about I think we talked about the you know the the mom in the second movie is the biggest point there. What the second movie could have been. If they had taken it in a different direction, we talked about that. We talked about how, you know, Jessica Roth is just a, a shining supernova, especially in the first movie. So everything I had as talking points, we've definitely covered. Excellent. Awesome. Normally, this is kind of where I would ask, what does this franchise contribute to to cinema, the genre? What is its legacy? But honestly, I feel like a lot of it kind of hinges on what it, whether it continues or not. I feel like that's the first one is sort of this genre mashup horror comedy, Groundhog Day meets, you know, Friday the 13th or whatever. And then the second one just takes that a step further. But is that, you mentioned Bill and Ted earlier in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. 
Bill and Ted Face the Music for My Money kind of splits the difference. And so you yes. get you get the time travel thing, collecting musical, you know, collecting historical figures this time, musical icons. But then you also get robots and you also get, you know, hell and and you get, you know, William Sadler back as death. So it it again tries to basically remix elements of the first two. Is it will the would the third film somehow be a time loop the horror? Like how would they how would they where do they go from here, basically? Do they I, there, Yeah. I have no idea what you do in the third movie. And it's one of those things where like if I if if they came to me tomorrow and they were like, We desperately need someone to write Happy Death Day Three, can you write this movie? First, I would be like, No. But second <laughs> You know, it, I don't know what you do, but I, I want them to get away from Monday the 18th, Tuesday yep. the 19th. Let's let's go a few years into this, the future. I mean, at this point, the first one came out in, what, 2017? It's been five years. These characters mm-hmm. are going to have visibly aged at least a little bit for you to keep telling me it's the same day. You can do the same formula. I get that. I mean, as much as I said about the Bill and Ted thing, I'm also going to be a huge liar here and sit there and say, like, I love the Friday the 13th movies. I love the Halloween (laughs) movies. They aren't reinventing the wheel every sequel that comes out either. Like Jason's going to stab you. That's the, that's the plot for 10 movies. Okay. I get it. So with this movie, you've already done the thing twice. I'll be fine if they do a thing where like tree keeps waking up on a different day and something bad is going on, but just like, just at least get it away from this day. Like, even Mm. if you do it like her birthday, three years from now and we we see everything that's changed in her life over the last three years and maybe she needs to relearn a lesson or something that's fine like just get it away from this day like we've really played out everything you can do on this college campus on monday the 18th yeah i agree and as far as there's not much information out about this obviously there's been since this one came out it did okay at the box office it didn't make nearly as much as the first one and there's been a whole lot of uncertainty about whether or not Blumhouse was even going to do a third one. Most recently, at least as of this recording, it sounds like Christopher Landon said that there's a script. Everyone else is, everyone's on board. You know, we're just ready to kind of get an official green light and then start shooting this thing. So it sounds like it's going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if it happens, especially now in this climate, for a streaming service that's of some form, for a peacock or whatever, which, you know, as a as an advocate for theaters, that's a little bit of a bummer. But at this point, I just like to I there's nothing I hate more than an unfinished trilogy. And this left Yeah. Left, you know, storytelling, it left threads un un untied. And it it will be t- titled Happy Death Day to Us, is what that's apparently what I heard. Is, yeah. yeah. And it's supposed to not be anywhere near this day. It's supposed to be you know, there's a, there's a a time jump of some, whether that's a few years or, or who knows, but we will not be doing the same day. So I think, I think, I think Christopher Landon at least knows I can't do the same thing three times. <laughs> like I have to now <laughs> switch it up. Even back to the future, they went to the old West for the third one. They didn't go back to the fifties again. So, so they, they, who knows? Yeah. And what the third, the- and, and I don't know, we'll, well, maybe we can have a little debate on this for one minute or so, but I think the third Back to the Future is better than the second for that reason, because Ooh. they do something more radically different than what part two did. I like the second one. I'm a defender of okay, the second one. Fair. I like the third that's one fair. too, but I'm also not, I'm not a huge fan of Westerns generally. And I, I so I let, yeah, I, I don't know. I like the second one because I, I'm a really, I'm a sucker for 
alternate universe kind of that kind of thing. So the 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 darker Hill Valley and Biff's Casino and all of that stuff I'm really into. And I like the third one as well. I think it's a solid conclusion to the trilogy. So yeah, I, but I think they need to they need to do something different with this one. Yeah. I, I'm curious yeah. with whatever they do. However, like I said, time loops, you can still Groundhog Day it up. Yeah. You can still do time loops. That's yeah. fine. Just like I said, get us out of the day. Give us a new reason for the time loops. Yeah, just, just do something a little bit different. If you said it's already been confirmed that it's going to be a time jump, that's great. I'm fine with that. Do you, are you, do you have any interest in any kind of a crossover with Freaky? Are you a fan of that movie? <laughs> like, would you want that? Because some people have, have said, have wanted to see the, you know, the Millie character from there kind of sort of teaming up with Tree, whether those two universes would mesh well together at all. What are your thoughts on that as a, as a possibility? For me, I, I at least want Happy Death Day 3, and then I don't care what you do after that. Yeah, yeah, as long as we're getting another movie, that's fine. I, you know what? They, they speculate on things like this, like for a hot minute there, they were saying that there was going to be a crossover between Men in Black and 21 Jump Street. And I'm here for these movies. Like, you might as well, again, it's the thing where, like, just swing for the fences. If you want to combine two movies that don't seem like they should be combined, because you have, in Freaky, like you said, it's an amulet. There's some kind of mystical thing going on. But in Happy Death Day, it's much more scientific. There's literally quantum physics, and she can figure out a formula to make it happen. So how do you reconcile this world where there is science fiction technology and fantasy magical elements? Like, sure, why not? Just throw it all together and make it happen. Catherine Newton and Jessica Roth in the same movie. Yeah, that sounds yeah. terrific. I am here for that. So, yeah, I mean, sure, why not? I watched Freaky once right whenever it came out in the pandemic streaming services at home. I enjoyed it. I don't know if it's a movie I'll necessarily watch again for a couple years at least, but I enjoyed it. It was fine. If you want to throw those characters together and give me something, that definitely seems like a streaming service movie. That mm -hmm. seems too risky to release in theaters. Like, I think that might be a little weird of a concept, but I'd watch it. I'd 100% watch it. Yeah, I, I Catherine Newton, who is joining the MCU and Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's right. He's the new Cassie Lang. Yeah, so, you know, maybe that's one, that's one way of getting Jessica Roth's foot. Yeah. If that happens. Yeah, just bring her bring her along, man. Come on. I, I do think the big challenge would be these movies are, and, and, and both of the Happy Death Day films and Freaky are, you know, very comedic and over the top. But the violence in Freaky is intense compared to Happy Death yeah. Day. That would like, do they split the difference? Do they downplay <laughs> Freaky or do they upgrade the violence in Happy Death Day? I don't know. But if we live in a world where we get Happy Death Day to us and then they want to do a, you know, Freaky Death Day mid like limited series, sure, I'll watch that and whatever and just do six episodes or whatever with those two actresses. I think what we've established is we like these two ladies kicking ass and yes, I'll yeah. watch them in whatever they're, they're in at this point. Yeah, Catherine Newton. Wasn't she supposed to be in a spinoff to Supernatural that never ended up happening? Because she was in Supernatural for a while. There was rumors they were going to create a, a, a spinoff called like Carry On Wayward Daughters or something. And it just never happened. Yeah, I mean, come on. Give Catherine Newton more to do. Right, exactly. No, I, I agree 100%. And Hollywood people hire Jessica Roth for anything. Yeah, she like, feels like... Come on. Watch, watch the first 20 to 30 minutes of Happy Death Day before she goes through the entire character change. And even then the character change because it works for the character. Watch the first 20 to 30 minutes of Happy Death Day and tell me that you couldn't make an X-Men movie in the MCU with her as Emma Frost. Come on. It's right there. 
She hasn't done a whole lot. Like, I mean, no, it's, she it's, hasn't. She, it's absurd. She did since Happy Death Day to You. She did the the Valley Girl remake that nobody saw. She was she's on a few episodes of Utopia, and then like some other movies. A couple of movies I haven't really heard. Like, but nothing major. Nothing. No big studio. You know, Marvel, Disney, Warner Brothers. Nobody's calling her for things, and I don't understand why. I don't know if it's just they're they're just discounting her. I'm like, oh, she's from those horror movies. That's whatever. That's a yeah. I wonder. But she was in La La Land. Like she's one of Emma Stone's roommates. She's in a whole musical number with her. So oh, okay. You know, there's the, the Emma Stone and her three roommates. There's like dancing down the street and dresses and stuff. Like there's a whole sequence that she's in in this almost Best Picture winner. So I don't. <laughs> I don't understand why she's not, why that's not happening. But the first one is, yeah, it's such a showcase for her, her ability to play pretty much every genre. And, and I, it's, I just want to see more of her, one more as, as Tree at least. And, and yeah. then I think we can, we can move on, let her move on to other things. But I, I like, I'd like to have this, this story round, wrapped up. Uh, so normally now is where I'm kind of doing ranking of franchises, but I know where we stand on this. I know you like the first one. Better than the second one. I am. I might. I might edge it out slightly. It might. I might put to to you slightly above the first one, but it's they're close. Like I love them. Both. You they watched them both at the same time, so you didn't go into the sequel already being a big fan of the first one like I did. So that makes exactly. sense. That's fair. Exactly. Yeah. I I only really watched these movies sort of in tandem. I feel like in theaters, relatively close from when I saw the, the first one to the second one, and then. You know, in preparation for this episode, I kind of back to back, like watch the first one and then immediately launch the second one. And it's it works perfectly for as people are looking for like a horror comedy double feature, make a make a thing of popcorn and order a couple pizzas and have a couple beers or whatever and watch some crazy shit. Like these are really fun movies, but you might cry in front of your friends. So brace up, <laughs> brace yourself for that. But yeah, this was so much fun. Hopefully they will do Happy Death Day to us in the near future. At which point I'll have to get you to come back on and we'll have to do a Yeah, round it out. Down. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and that would make and and that's the case. And there's a time jump. That'll make sense that we have kind of put these two together because they are essentially one long three hour time loopy saga involving tree. Yeah, I wanna say you already gave it away on Letterboxd. I gave this movie a five. I love this movie. I had a list on Letterboxd of my 10 favorite movies of all time, and then I watched Terminator 2, and I was like, all right, I need to go a little bit further, because <laughs> Terminator 2 is like number 11. It is right behind my list there. So I kind of expanded that up to the top 20, and make fun of me if you want. The first two movies I added whenever I was adding on the rest of the top 10 list were Terminator 2 and Happy Death Day. I really love this movie. It's legit top 20 for me, like of all the movies I've ever seen. I I think this movie's an absolute blast. Yeah, I agree. I agree. People definitely check that out. You have a lot of presumably a, a nice time, amount of time here before the third one actually comes together. So jump on these. So much fun. And uh, since I was about to ask you about social media, tell people where they can find you on Letterboxd and then so social media in general. Letterboxd, I don't know how you find people on there. My name on there is just my name, Robert Stewart. It's a picture of my SWO logo that's blue and black. If you can find that, great. Friend me. I'm always looking to meet people on Letterboxd and compare movie scores. But uh, over at Twitter, I am at SWO Productions. I tweet all the time, mostly about nonsense garbage, but I try to have fun with people on there. And I have the website that goes with my podcast, which is SWOproductions.com. We have new 
pop culture articles every single weekday. So check that out. We talk about comic books, cartoons, movies, food, whatever. So yeah, definitely give that a look if you have a minute. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stu, for coming on and talking about these movies. I, I like that this conversation happened sort of organically because I had been on a, a couple of uh, a couple of podcast episodes talking about my love for these movies. So people can hear those at Offscreen Babble if they can search for that on their podcatcher of choice. And then when I saw that you tweeted something about how much you loved this movie, I was like, oh, we get it. we got to have that happen then. Uh, so I'm glad we were able to to finally lock and load that. And, uh, and thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Big thanks to Robert Stewart from the Stu World Order podcast for coming on to talk about 2017's Happy Death Day and 2019's Happy Death Day to you. Now, I want to know, what are your thoughts on this franchise? Did you, are you excited for a third one? Jason Blum and uh, Christopher Landon keep toying with my emotions with whether or not the third one's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what it's going to be about. I'm very curious to hear what you loyal Happy Death Day fans want out of a third movie, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table and the same handle on Instagram or via email robert at crookedtable.com. Also, catch up with the show on Good Pods. Having a lot of fun there, like I said earlier. And next episode, we are starting our brand new mega series. That's right. We're going Muppets, y'all. It's going to be a wild ride. Strap in. But until then, this is to be the end of another Crooked Table production. See you down the road, everyone, till it's time to light the lights, that is. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the